Over the past few weeks, our lives have quickly changed in profound ways. We continue to be committed to care for our patients, provide education for our trainees, and support our family and friends. This special podcast series during the COVID-19 pandemic will bring you perspectives from our otolaryngology community on what is going on in real time. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. This is episode six in the COVID pandemic special series. This was recorded on April 28th, 2020 with Dr. Paul Bryson, who is a laryngologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. There's also a special guest appearance by Paul's wife and kids. Thanks for being on the show, Paul. Oh, it's, it's great to be on the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, my pleasure. How is the COVID pandemic affecting you on a day-to-day basis at this point? It's been, you know, like most people, a real work in progress. On a personal level, there's certainly some shock and anxiety as things rolled out in the middle part of March. Professionally, you've seen a big reduction in patient volume, certainly across our whole health system and in otolaryngology and laryngology in general. We've seen the advent of telemedicine very dramatically and very rapidly. And so I will see patients you know, virtually now, I will see some patients in the, in the office that I take care of for their tracheostomies or that have airway concerns. We've maintained some level of surgical operations for oncology and airway across our system. You know, other than that, it's been really trying to figure out ways to settle in at home and settle in professionally and academically. Lots of new and interesting questions that come to light as we try to chart this course and try to restart our practices. Yeah. So what's going on in Ohio and in Cleveland specifically, as far as reopening surgical volumes, clinics, et cetera? Yeah. Just yesterday, our governor uh, laid out a a timeline and a framework for turning to do elective surgery. That will start, I believe, May 1st per the governor. However, We are still working through what that process will look like. I have a role as a quality officer and safety officer for ambulatory surgery centers. So testing will now be a part of the preoperative assessment of all these patients. So the nice thing about our system is we've developed in-house testing, not a novel test, but just in-house testing and in-house testing capability so that as we start to ramp this up, we'll be able to have capacity to test patients within 48 hours of surgery. Uh, with the hope of keeping the patient and our caregivers safe as they go through their surgical process. And you're using N95s and PAPRs for every case, correct, at this point? Yeah, our PPE policy has evolved significantly over time. Initially, it was, you know, masks and face shields and things. But as we, you know, dug deeper into aerosolizing procedures, and we've been good stewards of our and 95 masks and face shields, we've been able to uh, utilize these things for most of our airway cases. Our anesthesia colleagues will wear N95s and face shields for all intubations. For head and neck cancer surgery, if it is only external and, and neck, then they can wear regular mask and face shield. If it's uh, laryngology, airway, things like that, then we're doing N95s and face shields. We've worked collaboratively with tracheostomies. We have a number of services that perform them. 
otolaryngology to interventional pulmonology to our colleagues in thoracic surgery. So we've all worked together on what that protocol would look like. And so we will do both open and percutaneous, uh, depending on the surgeon's preference. We will try to do these tracheostomies in the unit in a contained space and use PAPRs for that. That's been our approach. We've been fortunate in Ohio not to have a large surge of patients to date. The public health measures taken in the mid parts of March have significantly flattened our curve and allowed our hospital volumes in Ohio, at least in our system and in the Cleveland metropolitan area, to be relatively flat. We have a number of discharges each day, and it seemed to have you know, it's been level. We'll see. Everything's on a two-week lag. So if we open up elective surgery, we will have some return to businesses. The retail space in Ohio won't tentatively open until near the middle of May. So almost another two weeks to see what happens with these relaxation measures before they open up retail. Schools, restaurants, bars will remain closed, as will gyms, at least until the middle of May. And depending on the date, I, I personally don't foresee that opening until the end of May or early June. Our state government has been very much data-driven. It's been not very, in my opinion, very politicized. They've basically been boring press conferences with data and you know trying to get people to buy into the process. And so it's been refreshing in some regard, regardless of your political persuasion. Yeah, I think that we are on a very similar timeline as you are. We are planning on opening elective cases and clinics next week, May 4th. And I think the government guidelines are also very similar and also have not really been very politicized. Happy to see. You know, it's interesting how talking to different people from different parts of the country, some people are completely different timelines than we are, but it sounds like Cleveland and Denver are similar. It's good to hear. I mean, Denver's a a pretty big city. You have a little bit more of an international feel and a larger airport and lots of folks. But I think our cities are similar. There seems to be a lot of suburb type living. There's not a lot of the same public transit crowdedness. There's still some car culture going on. Yeah, agree. Well, and I think the biggest thing that made a difference in Denver was closing the ski resorts very early because that accounts for most of our travel into and out of our state. What worries you the most about the pandemic at this point? There's so many levels to that. There's certainly the personal. I always worry about uh, being exposed at work and, and, you know, affecting my family, my kids, my wife. I worry about our parents. Both have been able to really shelter in place and, and have resources and help in their communities. So that, that's been good. You know, I worry about my friends and, and colleagues and things like that. That ebbs and flows depending on the day and depending on the information that is out there. So that's always a concern. Professionally, as we open back up, we're in a vulnerable specialty. So I, I worry about high-level disinfection for things that we usually just take for granted. I, I wonder about what our aerosol and droplet burdens really are. I'm hopeful that some of the measures that we're taking with masking of ourselves in the workplace and masking of our patients, I feel like that is a positive thing. I feel that will help diminish droplet and aerosol. 
I think it's a really cool area for research. There are groups and people looking at mass composition and looking at the mechanical properties of filtration, as well as the, the actual filtration of different textile materials that would compose a mask. And I think that's just really interesting stuff that we haven't thought of before, even during regular influenza season and, and whatnot. I think it, it, it makes me wonder if this is something that would be here to stay for a long while in terms of uh, respiratory droplets and aerosols. You know, on the quality and safety side, we, we often talk about universal precautions and eye protection has become standard in our operating rooms and our procedural spaces. But there is always a little bit, you know, you wonder how, how strict people are complying to it and things like that. And, and I would say now, I think it's just interesting. I'd, I'd like to go and take a look at what just what are, what's our microbial burden in a clinic. You know, how, how well does our disinfection do if you wipe down between patients or at the end of the day? Could we do better? Are high-touch surfaces, you know, legitimate vectors in our practices? You know, so those are sort of the quality and safety initiatives I, that exist where we've never addressed those in, in recent memory that I can think of. And it might be a good opportunity for innovation and partnership with infectious disease. You know, on the hospital inpatient side, people are very much attuned to hospital-acquired infections. It's tied to other quality initiatives on the payer side and, and outcomes for us across a number of specialties. But I would, I would hazard to say that on the outpatient side and some of our other office procedural suites and things like that, we just don't know the answer to that because there's a lot of coming and going out of rooms. So I think it's another area of safety and quality that touches most of our specialties. So hopefully those are things that we'll be able to participate in and perhaps lead in. Just other medical and surgical specialties have you know, a different dynamic in the uh, outpatient clinic area. You know, our, our clinical practices drive our productivity and the patients we serve other surgical fields, it is less of a driver. Yeah. Do you guys have a protocol for what you do after you perform a laryngoscopy as your clinics open back up? Yeah, not at this time. I think the biggest thing that we have right now is we've limited laryngoscopy. There's universal masking now at the Cleveland Clinic for patients, for all staff. And I think that is a good first step. You know, the more data I read about mask filtration and capabilities of even simple masks to prevent larger droplet sizes, it seems like a step in the right direction. Looking backwards, we, we can't go back to the old state and take samples and measurements of what our droplets did because it didn't feel like it mattered. <laughs> so now my concern would be we do all of the masking and all of this and it doesn't look that bad, which I guess would be reassuring. Yeah, <laughs> but it, We don't have a protocol for what to do with a room after a basic diagnostic laryngoscopy. I don't know that we know best practices with that. We've stopped trying to aerosolize things in the nose when we topically anesthetize and decongest. So it's a nice return for cotton and uh, bayonets. Yeah, there's no evidence-based guidelines at this point for aerosolization. So we're at this point thinking of doing an hour 
letting the room air out for an hour after a scope, but we don't really know how long it takes. It's hard to know. It's hard to know. It's hard to set up an exact model where you can image the droplets and you can look at the um, sort of residence time while it's in the air. Mm -hmm. And then if you think about what we normally do, there's some coming and going into a room. Somebody comes and takes your scope, opens the door, closes the door. So there's this sort of ununiform, heterogeneous process with scope cleaning, room cleaning. Yeah. Well, I think we'll have a better idea of that in the next couple of weeks as we start opening our clinics, if we see a huge rise in cases. Is that, well, we still won't know is that because people are leaving their homes more frequently because the stay-at-home orders are eased, or is that because of elective medical care? Yeah, well, it would be interesting to track the amount of healthcare providers that are infected. Yeah. We've been tracking that pretty closely here, I'm sure, as you have, and it seems the rates here feel like community spread rates as opposed to a preponderance of providers. Right. Yeah, so what are you doing to stay sane during this time? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to do a number of things. I'm trying to read a lot. I've enjoyed reading literature and different medical specialties that I haven't considered reading in some time, usually infectious disease and pulmonology and sort of dusting off New England Journal of Medicine things and Lancet items. I've been trying to exercise. The weather here is not awesome, but there are some nice days right now, like today is a nice day. So we got outside. Um, I'll play with the kids. We got a spinning bike for the basement, which has been actually quite fun. So I've been pelotoning, uh, which is something that I hadn't done previously. I've been doing uh, some strength training and weightlifting. I have some equipment in the gym. And um, so I'm missing some of my friends from my gym that, that I try to go to. But uh, yeah, we've been doing that. We've been listening to music. We've been playing with the kids a bit. I think the Zoom platform has, I've hung out with friends that I've kept in touch with, but it's just felt like one less barrier to actually put together a video conference that actually feels more personal than trying to get together previously. So some friends from college, some friends from residency. So that's, that's actually been kind of fun. We've been cooking a bit more. Yeah, just doing that. The days go by kind of quick sometimes. And I've been trying to settle into allowing myself to try to enjoy the time. That was a process. I think the first two weeks of all of these changes were a little jarring and it was hard to try to chart a course forward and make a new routine when we're used to having a, a certain way that we serve patients and work with our families and fit it all together somehow. So I would say, uh, you know, it's been nice in some regards. Everyone so thankfully has been, been healthy and we've been able to spend time together. So that's, that's been good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I can hear your kids in the background. Can I change rooms? Oh, yeah. Just, yeah, hold on one second. This it's is okay. easy. Hold on one second here. We're going <laughs> to go down to the basement. It's really okay. No, I know. <laughs> to do. Hi. 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 Hello. How are you? 
Good. How are you doing? Good. Let me know. I'm anxious to listen. Oh, yeah. I'll text you the link. Please do. Go down to my underground lair. It's not, I, to call this a man den would be a lie. It is basically <laughs> a child den with toys. Yeah. All right. You know, back to other things. Just, we've enjoyed cooking and having meals together and a schedule that's been weird, but maybe more civilized. <laughs> yeah. So we keep hearing about all of the medical systems that are financially struggling. I'm assuming it's no different for the Cleveland Clinic. What kind of changes are taking place as far as salaries and compensation over there? Yeah, thankfully, I, I have to say I'm very grateful uh, to work, you know, here where, where I work. We've, we've not had any discussions about salary reduction or layoffs or furloughs or, or anything like that. There's been a general belt tightening through the system, certainly with travel. That's not happening for a while. We've tried to consolidate our clinical time just to use less resources. So, you know, that aspect hasn't happened here yet. The clinic has, you know, been pretty good stewards of of investment and some philanthropy in the last several years. I'm sure they're taking a number of things into consideration now with federal bailout funds, other uh, resources and things that they've had in the past. And they probably have some ability to to get some uh, lines of credit and things like that. I think it'll come into a little more clarity here as the fiscal year goes on. Uh, but so far, we've been, you know, shielded from that. It's It's been a, a gift, really. I imagine your patient population has changed somewhat because I know when I worked there, you would see a lot of international patients who probably are not traveling to Cleveland at this point to be seen. Yeah, that's right. The international stuff is pretty well dried up for us, which is expected. You know, the tone, it's just, it's been a nice tone really, even before the pandemic sort of fully manifested here. They've had a number of philanthropy initiatives to try to have more of a community presence with the food bank, with the Fairfax neighborhood. There's been some partnerships with some other neighborhoods with our laundry facility. That's a really cool facility that's a partnership and joint venture with, you know, maybe people that are sort of re-entering society to work in a pretty high capacity laundry. There's been talk about trying to, you know, decrease food insecurity across the city. There's an opportunity for staff to volunteer at the food bank in a paid fashion as part of a way to participate. And then there's been conversations of of trying to actually get a grocery store or something like that into the neighborhood of the hospital because there's many people in that area that, that live and don't really have easy access to a basic grocery. Yeah, the patient population has changed some, but I think they've sort of redoubled their efforts to, you know, be a good community partner. The coronavirus testing has basically been covered, and if it's not reimbursed, the clinic won't be pursuing any collection on that. So I think the the amount of charity care has really gone up the last couple of years. I don't know. They seem well-positioned for things. It probably can't go on forever. We need to start taking care of patients. And, you know, I think our concern is that people have put off things for a while, and we've we certainly don't want to miss the opportunity to help somebody who has a treatable condition. Right. How are you going to work through the backlog of cases? 
Yeah, there's a tiered process. Uh, all of the institutes have gone through all of their caseloads and tiered them. I'm sure there's similar stuff at other places, but you know, you've tried to tier it on severity, on function. So uh, in ENT, we've had sort of a running Excel spreadsheet of cases on backlog. We'll just start rolling that stuff out as we um, refine the protocol for pre-screening and that workflow. And you kind of get to have a little bit of a dry run because our oncology service really hasn't slowed down very much. They've been sort of going full steam because we haven't been overrun at the inpatient level. And we've been able to even look at ways of trying to have some patients come from New York or from the Michigan area if the hospitals can't take care of their cancers and things right now. So we've, we've tried to be a good neighbor in that regard, too. So just for cancer, though, not for COVID? We haven't been asked too much about COVID. I know there's probably been some transfers, but it's been cancer and, and other things. The state's divided up into three quadrants for COVID care. The Cleveland group sort of quarterbacks the top northern third of the state, and then the central third, and then the southern third. So it's the three C's that would be Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. From what we're hearing every day, no places seem to be too overrun. If, if people are starting to near capacity, then we take people and transfer. You know, the nice thing with the clinic system is we have two big regional hospitals on the east and west in addition to the main, so we're able to diffuse the and contain the COVID population to units in three locations. And then we've partnered with Akron General and Akron. So they're part of our group now too. You know, as a system, we've been pretty good. And I think we've partnered pretty well with our neighbors uh, at Metro Health and University Hospitals. I don't know what their censuses are for COVID. I I would say that us and, and University Hospitals seem to have the most from what I've heard. I have heard that Metro has not been as burdened Yeah, we've seen the highest numbers at the university and our county hospital, which is similar to Metro, as far as looking at the academic institutions that we rotate residents through. I don't know the numbers at the private hospitals around town. Has there been much talk with you guys about redeployment or have people been redeployed onto other services? So far, no faculty have been reassigned. We have two residents right now who have been reassigned to cover inpatient internal medicine. They're junior residents, and so they're closer to that in medical school. And so they're taking one for the team. I really appreciate them doing that. But otherwise, no, we have not reassigned anyone. And as we start building up our elective cases and clinics again, you know, I really can't see that we would have the capacity to reassign much else because I anticipate that we'll have bigger inpatient services again and need our residents in other capacities. Yeah, same here. It's been mostly preparatory things. You know, one of the initiatives from our state government was to increase our capacity and preparation for a surge. So based on the early modeling, they wanted us to increase our hospital capacity by three times. Wow. So it's been amazing to sort of behold we have a new medical school building on campus that opened in the last couple of years, and they converted that into what they call a HOPE hospital. And they completely redesigned the three uh, levels as a, in a very large atrium. And it now can has capacity for a thousand patients. It's been an amazing transformation. You can find it on the website if you want to see what this thing looks like. And so we, we've increased capacity by a thousand beds there if needed. Wow. 
Yeah. And then had more capacity in the hotel conference center if needed. We then had a redeployment strategy where we <clears throat> listed uh, several faculty to be redeployed. There's been a few that would be assigned to redeploy, but we aren't near the thresholds for redeployment. Uh, we're several hundred admissions away from that. So it, it's not looking at this moment like that's imminent. Right. And then on the resident side, we identified, you know, mostly junior residents that were closer to, to how you described, closer to inpatient medicine care. But at this point, I don't, I think maybe we have two people redeployed. We also, I think, got spared with the reassignment because we just never surged to the levels that we were worried we would, which is great. Yeah, no, it, you know, everything's on a two week lag. So hopefully it's this month. And early June doesn't become something where we're going back. Yeah, I mean, the good news is we thought through all that, so it wouldn't be that difficult to manage it yeah. if it happened, but hopefully it doesn't. We know how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to see less patients and do telehealth. <laughs> right, exactly. I have, I, yeah. have that, I have that pretty well down now. So what do you think as far as going back to normal? I mean, when do you think... This is clearly a personal opinion. Yeah. When do you think you're going to travel again? When do you think you're <laughs> going to go to a conference again? Oh, go to a conference? Yeah. I'm, I'm a little more bearish on this. I, I don't think it's probably happening until, you know, next academic year. I'd be really surprised. I just, I don't see there being full meeting travel. There'll be a number of factors with that, in my opinion. I, this is purely opinion. One will be... There's going to be asymmetry across the country with where places are at with containment, depending on where your meeting is and if it's, a, it's going to draw people from presumably all around the country working in a high-risk environment. I just It doesn't make a lot of sense to me as to how that would play out when the response across the country has been so asymmetric. And then I think there's the financial realities of it too. We'll, we'll be going back to work and trying to not make up for lost time, but we'll certainly be back in a setting where we have to be concerned about finances and things like that. So to, to break people away for meetings, while very important to the probably the tripartite mission of all academic medical centers, you might be able to make the argument that it's not, you know, quote unquote, essential travel. Right. So, yeah, I just, I think we're going to be doing some virtual meetings and things like that for the foreseeable future, well, you know, maybe a year, year and a half. I could, I could be wrong. You know, when will I personally travel? I don't know. We have a wedding in Texas in the fall. We have in-laws in Texas that want to come see the grandkids. So I think it'd be pretty limited. I think most of my travel will be car travel, but I think there's a possibility that we, we could see or at least have some air travel. I just think it's going to be pretty muted and it's going to be a lot of sanitary wipes and masks. Yeah, it's a long way to Texas via car. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. People, I, I feel like people are kind of getting antsy a little bit as the weather gets better. So it it's just human nature. I mean, I think everyone's been really bought into this for the most part mm -hmm. in our state, uh, a majority of people, but people are, are only human. So hopefully, you know, the data backs up this stuff and we're able to maybe get together in small groups. 
That's my hope. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's yeah, I, I agree with you on the weather. We we had a really nice weather week last week, and today is actually 80 and sunny. So we've actually seen an uptick in the trauma numbers in the last week. Yeah, I think people are getting antsy because they don't have anywhere to go. All of our restaurants and bars are closed also, but I think people are just gathering a little bit more. Yeah, it's it's an interesting time. We haven't really had to change our behaviors in this way in a lifetime. All right. Well, yeah. what else do you want to add, Paul? Oh, not too much else. I just I I guess I'd just say thanks and I I wish all the folks that are listening or that download the podcast to I hope they found some value in it and I I hope everyone's able to stay safe and find some balance, sort of value the time that we have with family and friends and reach out to your family and friends because I want to hear from you. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime.